Hello, and welcome to Rich in Relationship. And today I'm with Erica Hockman, who is an extraordinary attorney in that she has decided she's going to be exclusively non-adversarial. She's been practicing family law for 20 years, and I'm super looking forward to hearing from her. How are you today, Erica? I'm good, Rich. How are you? <laughs> I'm really good. I, I feel like feel like we've been here before, so. <laughs> well, you know, I so have one of those faces. The first question, as you may have anticipated, is how has your passion or your heart drawn you to this family law work, particularly the non-adversarial piece? Well, I went to law school to help people um, be an advocate. And uh, after my clerkship, I got a job with a firm that did family law as, as well as other things and did litigation. And after years of practicing, fighting and realizing that everything ended up settling, most, most things ended up settling before trial, um, it was really the best way to help people and get a good resolution. And I had done mediation in an alternative dispute resolution in law school. I had got formally trained in mediation in my clerkship and it naturally progressed into learning about collaborative practice of law. And um, it just happened that way. And now I'm all in. Got it. And so for the sake of our audience, why don't we make a distinction between litigation, mediation, and collaborative law? How would you describe litigation? Uh, litigation is a process that is filled with enormous amounts of conflict. Um, you are very positional as to what you want. Mm. And then you have to another attorney on the other side arguing what their client wants. And ultimately a judge decides the outcome. And yeah, I, I, I would add to that, that it, because it is a negotiation between the two attorneys, the attorneys may be asking things of one another that the couple never expected. You know, I know that, for example, uh, in my own divorce, my wife wanted an outlandish amount of money from me that she, I thought that she knew that we didn't have. And I didn't, until I asked some people realize that this was a negotiating stance that you always ask for more, hoping that you'll get what you want. So it can be very triggering is the point. Yes, it is. There are a lot of activating things that happen in litigation that don't necessarily happen in non-adversarial uh, practices. Not because people don't know how to trigger one another, they certainly do. But the professionals are there to help people either manage that triggering or prevent it from happening altogether. And I've even heard some, I've had clients who've complained that they felt their attorney encouraged that triggering because they thought their attorney was making more money when it happened. So we never, we don't know if that's the truth or not. That was their experience. Well, I, I think a lot of people experience that in litigation. They, um, there's not the same level of trust, mm. um, not necessarily in your attorney, but on the other side's attorney. Whereas Absolutely. in collaborative, um, that sense doesn't necessarily exist. Meaning, um, you know, there's a very transparent um, relationship that exists with trust and everything else that it doesn't allow um, the, the lack, there is no lack of communication. You know, most of the communications that we have are full team meetings. So maybe I should talk about collaborative a little bit. So I was going to ask you, so why is the collaborative process so different from litigation? I mean, you still got 
a couple getting divorced. They still got all the same stuff. That's the reason why they're getting divorced. They still have two attorneys. So what makes it different? So if nothing else, there are more players in place. Um, you each have your own attorney. So you have your own advocate to educate you and help you through the process. And there are two neutrals, a financial neutral and a mental health professional. Um, and in higher conflict, because just because we're not adversarial and going in front of a judge, doesn't mean that the conflicts don't exist. There can be a, a, a two coach model mm -hmm. used with each person having their own coach or mental health professional help them through the process. And um, there's, you know, an agreement that is signed in the collaborative process by all the participants, clients and neutrals and attorneys that say that we are here together. We are committing to this process. Mm -hmm. And if this process fails, we can't represent you in court. Mm -hmm. So there's so they have a vested interest in the process now. Right, right. So that goes to your point about whether or not uh, the attorneys fuel the fire to keep things going longer. In, in collaborative, the, the job of the attorneys is actually not to have a fire. Is we're, we're, we're more the firemen and women who are putting the fires out so that it doesn't get to the point where it's out of control. We are there to help manage the situation and prevent the fires from even occurring. Gotcha. Um, yeah, right. So, and so we have as much buy-in to the process professionally as the clients do, which I think shows the client that we are there for them versus going in front of a court, every single second you take, everything you do, you might see as having a different motivation. Mm -hmm. uh, but it also gives the clients control. So in litigation, though 97% of litigation cases are settled, you are going to appear in front of a judge several times and the judge is going to have influence in collaborative. That's not going to happen. People, they uh, negotiate uh, a, a, an agreement that will, at the end of the process, appear before a judge. Correct, correct. And, and right, so how, does, how is all that different than mediation? So mediation is a neutral who is there to help two people without their attorneys present come to an agreement. And that neutral can be a lawyer. It can be another type of mediator who is skilled in mediation. And the two people figure out what works for them. They have the law as a guideline and they are then still free to be you know, the architects of their plan and figure out what works best for them. Um, in mediation, I suggest uh, there's always review counsel at the end um, so that people can review the agreement at, at a bare minimum. But the best way to approach a mediation, even with an attorney who's mediating, is to have your review counsel from the onset so you are informed and you feel protected. And oftentimes people will, will retain me as that role to lead them through the mediation you know, temper their expectations so that they're not having these outlandish conversations about their positions and, and working from their goals and how do we achieve their goals. Mm -hmm. And um, goals are different than positions. Positions are, I, I need $1,500 a week. Well, okay, but your, what's your goal? Well, my goal is really to be able to stay home and take care of my children. And mm -hmm. in order to do that, this is what it's going to cost for me to do that. And so we work from a place of goals versus positions. And um, having an attorney who is skilled in mediation and collaborative divorce 
coach you through a mediation, even if they're not the mediators, oftentimes will be a much, um, I wouldn't say faster, but a much more um, efficient way of handling uh, a mediation and also feeling confident as a participant as to the outcome that you've agreed to. Yeah, and actually, I think studies of the costs of all three processes shows that litigation tends to be the most expensive, collaborative lands somewhere in the middle, and mediation, on average, is less expensive. That isn't always true, but it's just these are averages. Yes, that is true. But I, I always say that if you enter into something that you're not fully understanding, or if it doesn't work for you, and you don't really understand what you're doing going forward, I don't care how much money you save in mediation, you're gonna end up spending more money going back to court to deal with that. So it is really important that you have review counsel or if not having somebody help you through the whole process. Well, and I think uh, it, at the heart of whether you're gonna go back to court or not, I guess there's two issues. On the one hand, it's making sure you really understand what you're agreeing to. But also yeah. on the other hand, it's making sure that you really emotionally buy into what you're agreeing to. And I know that uh, in litigation, people often come out on the other end making an agreement that they feel they have to, but they don't want to, and then consequently end up going back to court down the road because they're really dissatisfied with some aspect of it. What I'm hearing about the mediation process and co the collaborative process is I love that distinction you made between people's position and their goals. You know, I think once they understand what their goals are, it might even be uh, being more true to your values. You know, a position might be based on a value, but from a value, you might also have multiple positions that you could take. And so if you roll it back to the goal or your value or what's important to you, you then you become more fluid in the position that you take and the agreement that you're going to enter into is as long as it still represents what you, what you really, really want, what you really, really want, you know, not just that, right. not what you say yeah. you want, you know, it's right. going to ring true for you in the long run. Right. So part of the, the beauty of the collaborative process and mediation is the creativity. And when you come from a place of goals, your options to build on are much more diverse than if you just have a position. If you have a position of needing something and this is how you're, that's all you're going to stand for, your options are, are very, very small. When you have a goal, we can look at all different ways to achieve that goal. Mm -hmm. And that's what the beauty of having all the professionals involved in the collaborative process allows for. So if you have a neutral, um, a financial neutral, is able to look at all your numbers and then from those numbers, give you options, meaning, okay, well, this is what we're working with. There are various ways that we can achieve this through what your finances are saying. So let's try to figure these things out. And, you know, obviously both sides have different goals. Sometimes those goals are the same. You know, um, a lot of these divorces that I, I deal with uh, have young children. Some are older children, but even still children nonetheless. And those are often the focus of the divorce. And it's always a commonality that people can come back to and agree to the mm -hmm. best interest of the children. So when you work from those points, the, the, oppor the opportunities and the options are endless. You know, let's figure out what is best for the children. Well, and that 
I've, I've met plenty of people who have had disagreements about what's best for them. I mean, they had different ideas about what's best for the children. And interestingly, that tends to come up more in litigation than in collaborative or in mediation, in my experience. What do, why well, do you think that is? Well, maybe because those people are a little bit more contentious or they don't have the same controls in place in litigation as they do in a collaborative process, having the mental health professionals there gives us a resource to pull on for studies and science and everything and, and experience to what is in the best interest of the children. Spending time with mom and dad, having mom and dad in their lives, what's better, what, where are the children in their development? So what would be best for younger children isn't necessarily what's best for older children. And these are all the different uh, things that a mental health professional, which I can't really speak to the full extent of their expertise, would be, but they are available to the clients and the professionals, the lawyers, to help the clients with. So if we don't know what's best for the children, right? Like you're saying, we have a resource to pull from. Whereas in a courtroom, yes, there are advocates on behalf of the children, and that's another way of doing with it, dealing with it. But I think that when you have two attorneys who are being educated at the same time by a mental health professional and two clients being educated by the mental health professional, you're able to come to uh, a resolution that doesn't escalate to uh, the level of what you deal with in a courtroom. That's, I think that's true what you say. Uh, and actually, and there's a huge difference between if you're, when you're litigating and a mental health professional is being called in to dictate to you what's best for the children and working with a, a coach or a therapist or whatever to really get to the heart of what's best for your children. I have a client who is divorcing a very, uh, she perceives her husband as being very narcissistic and toxic. And at first she didn't want her child to have any contact with him because she felt very threatened by him. And then over time, she came around to the idea that the child would be worse off not knowing his father than being exposed to the qualities that he had that she felt were toxic. And so now the work she's doing is all about how do I quit my child to deal with people who have this particular thing going on so that, and, and doing it in a way that doesn't point fingers at the father. It's, it, and she's actually much happier, happy, like within herself because connection to family is a huge value for her. So even though this guy is less than ideal in her perspective, you know, it's still super important that there be that connection. And she arrived at that on her own, you know, through information that we were providing to her uh, and then made the decision as opposed to going to court and having a therapist say, well, listen, it's in the best interest of the child to be with the father and the judge saying, okay, that's how we're doing it. And, you know, the client's not moving along with that process. The client's being dictated to. I, I'm curious, um, it, studies show that for children, their greatest risk is that first year after the divorce is settled. This is something new we're bringing into the mix here. So in that first year after the divorce is settled, children um, are more at risk of doing poorly in school, of having emotional pro uh, breakdowns or being sexually promiscuous or taking uh, unnecessary risks like maybe experimenting with drugs and alcohol at an earlier age, you know, right up down to being suicidal depending on what's, you know, what they're, personal vulnerability is and what's going on in their lives. 
And I'm wondering um, how can mediation and collaboration help better position the children for that first year? Um, I, I think it's really interesting. Um, I, I, um, I think that if, if you have that knowledge, then you can design something to put in place. If you know that you have a child who is at risk or you see these tendencies, you can anticipate it. Um, you know, in my agreements, when I draft them and we talk about everything, we talk, we try to encompass things that might occur, you know, out-of-pocket medical expenses, how you address things that uh, psychiatric expenses, psychological expenses for the parents to, um, to pay for. But we also put in there resources available to the parents to look at professionals for opinions. And so even if both parents aren't in agreement as to the need for something like that to help the child, which as we said before, just because one, one um, parent sees something as in their best interest, the other parent might not. To get those experts to uh, give them information. So talk to a psychologist, talk to a psychiatrist as to the best way to approach it. You can then give it to the other parent. And, and then um, if the parent doesn't agree, we put it in our agreements. When I say we, I belong to a lot of uh, pods, which are groups of professionals mm -hmm. uh, that we talk about these things. And most people we, we practice with, you must come back to the collaborative process. Now, you don't necessarily have to use us, but we do put in there that there has to be, either you go back to mediation or you go back to a parenting uh, coordinator or an expert, some person in the process to help you move forward on these issues on piecemeal so that you don't end up having to go back to court. And court is always a last resort because again, part of the problem is the conflict and the kids see this conflict, I'm sure, and causes them a great deal of anxiety and, and whatnot. Um, being in the collaborative process, I have seen a huge transformation of people that come into my office as uh, going through divorce and in distress at the beginning and come out very secure co-parenting. You know, there are bumps along the road, there always are, um, but it really is transformational to see people starting off in the stress of divorce and coming in for consultations to the end result of an agreement that they've both come to and they agree to with the full understanding of what they've agreed to and, and made the decision to do this uh, in their agreement. So all of those factors considered and taken into, you know, into consideration when you um, are agreeing to things and drafting things, I think would allow people uh, um, more resources to deal with these kinds of situations. I yeah, no, that, that makes is... that makes perfect sense. It makes perfect sense that if in the process you're moving together through the process, you're more likely to have communication and a co-parenting situation as opposed to parallel parenting where you're making independent decisions and not really talking to each other. So after the divorce is over, you're both going to be more present to what's going on with your children. If you're not, you've got in your agreement that you've got resources that you can turn to. Makes perfect sense. And I, I could see how in litigation that is a highly unlikely outcome. One last question. Yeah. What is the legacy you'd like to leave behind? Uh, I would like to change the face of divorce. I, um, I think divorce has a very um, ugly connotation and it is never a positive thing that people have to go through. It's always very stressful, uh, but to be able to change people's experiences in the process to seeing that there is a life 
after divorce and that it isn't the end, it's the beginning. That is a super noble aspiration. The idea that, uh, I know a lot of times when people get divorced, they think I'm finally gonna get rid of him. I'm finally gonna get rid of her. And instead, you know, instead of having it have that kind of energy, having it be a transformation of a relationship, this relationship isn't working this way. Let's find a way that it will work, especially when they're, especially when they're children involved. Really love yeah, it. And I, yeah, and I always say to people, you might no longer be married, but you are still a family. Yeah, well, and it's just, it, you're still a family. You have children together and you are a family. And um, it might be a different idea as what you thought family looked like, but you are still a family and you're going to have events together, joys together. And, you know, this is a great way to start that. Awesome. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. And I really appreciate all the time and effort that you put into this podcast. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me.